two-part study entitled Crosses and Cups Before Crowns. Our main text is going to be from Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verse, just three verses today, 32, 33, and 34. And Matthew and Luke give us some additional information, and I'll be telling you about that. But Mark presents for us the most comprehensive record of this account, so we will primarily be looking at what Mark says. And um, this is one of those places where we can very dogmatically say that what we are studying in this passage did indeed, it was indeed the next recorded set of events that took place in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ following his encounter with the rich young ruler and his subsequent teaching to his disciples that followed that encounter, which included, as we saw in our last lesson, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Okay, now what we find as we look at our outline for this study, this new study, which I it's going to be a two-part, so we're only be, going to be looking at the first part of crosses and cups before crowns. And um, we're going to see that in this morning's study, the Lord Jesus steadfastly continued his walk toward Jerusalem. Remember, he is on his way to Jerusalem. He's only about a week away from the cross. And as he's walking, it is with an iron determination that both amazed and frightened his disciples. And so we'll see that he stopped to tell them again in his final and most detailed forecast. He'd stop to tell them of his upcoming sufferings and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And that's all we're going to get to today as we look at part one of our outline, the suffering announcement. And because there is so much territory to cover this morning, even though it's just three verses... Um, that's going to just be our introduction, and I want to get right into the text. So look with me at Mark 10, verses 32 to 34. It says, And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Now that sounds kind of strange. He's in front of them. Why are they amazed? What are they amazed about? And why are they afraid? So we'll talk about that. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen to him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man... Actually, over, I'm going to interrupt myself, but over in Luke, you don't see this here in Mark, but Luke tells us right before he says the Son of Man, Luke says, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. That's added by Luke. All right. It's a bowl. We go up to Jerusalem and the son of man shall be delivered unto. And Matthew adds that he would be betrayed. He would be betrayed and delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. And they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they, the Gentiles, shall mock him and shall scourge him. And Luke adds, they shall spitefully entreat him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. And then Luke tells us, we'll talk about this, and I'll actually have you go over to Luke to look at this. But in Luke 18:34, Luke tells us they didn't understand any of this. Okay. Well, the Lord and his men, along with an ever-growing number of Passover pilgrims, and if you want to look at verse 46, you'll see that it was a great number of people 
who were following the Lord at this time. Not only was he walking ahead and his disciples were behind him, but behind them was this great number of people, a growing number of Passover pilgrims. And where were they going? They were on their way, even though they didn't know it, he knew it, they were on their way to the cross. It says they were in the way, the way there speaks of the way to the cross. And they were going up to Jerusalem, which even though they were headed south, they had been up at the border of Galilee and were headed south, you know by now, if you've been in this study for any length of time, that um, because Jerusalem is situated up on a high hill, no matter what direction you approach the city, you always have to go up. So the Jews always talked about going up to Jerusalem. Furthermore, they always talked about going up to Jerusalem because of the fact that it was uh, the holy city. They, they spoke of it, you know, as the, the exalted nature of the city. So they used the word up. But it says that Jesus went before them. And the imperfect tense is used there, which means it says he was going. He kept going before them. He was on the way to the place he knew he was to die. But rather than lingering behind or dragging his feet or um, even walking with his men, which was his usual manner, he usually walked with them so as to utilize every possible moment to, to teach them. But here he is, he's out in front, and this was unusual. And the response of amazement and fear in the Lord's followers tells us that this was something unusual. There was something unusual going on. Something that was giving them a very strong sense of apprehension as they looked at their master out ahead. They knew that there was something different, you know, about this Jerusalem journey and about his countenance, perhaps, the way he was so um, focused. And they, they sensed, a, you know, a spiritual or some kind of a tension in the air. Now, it's interesting to remember that the disciples back, if you look at verse 26 of Mark 10, that the disciples were astonished out of measure. It actually said over in Matthew's account that they were exceedingly amazed. There they were amazed at his words because he had just said, you know, that it was impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of, of heaven. And now here in verse 32, we find that they're amazed at his actions. Amazed at his words and amazed at his action. There was apparently, as I said, this iron spirit, the spirit of determination, not only in his countenance, but also in his resolve. That was very much evidenced to them by perhaps his quickened pace, you know, that he was walking a lot faster than normal. And this, this sent him far out ahead of, of the disciples. And likely he was so engrossed in thoughts his own thoughts, probably, of all that lay ahead of him, that his preoccupation and his pensiveness and his pace astonished and perplexed his men. The depth of thought that they must have perceived in him frightened them. Now, remember, they're going to Jerusalem, and the disciples would very well remember that the last time they had been in Jerusalem, what had happened? Right, the religious rulers had actually tried to stone him to death right after he had said, my father and I are one. 
They didn't like that. They, they considered that blasphemy and they picked up stones to stone him to death. And this was why they're alar- they were alarmed. Remember when he told them regarding the Lazarus situation? He had told them that he was going to go to Bethany. He was four days late, but of course he wasn't really late, was he? But when he told them he was going there, Bethany was just two miles outside of, of Jerusalem, and, and they were upset. They said, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee. Don't you remember that? <laughs> and, and goest thou thither again? That was in John eleven eight. But they had, they had agreed along with Thomas. You know, Thomas was the spokesman in this situation that since he insisted on going to Bethany, okay, they would go with him and they would die with him. And that had only been, no, it's a long time ago in our study, but it was only probably somewhere about seven to 12 days before where we are today. And, and now the Lord was headed back into that hostile territory. And he was doing so, of course, knowing full well, not only in his deity, because he wrote the scriptures, he wrote all of the, the Old Testament scripture. He knew in his deity and his, in his humanity, because all of his life as a man, he had been studying the scripture. He knew that he would be hanging on a cross in approximately a week's time. Now, actually, although the synoptic gospel accounts don't give to us his thoughts as he is walking out in front of his men on the way to Jerusalem to his voluntary sufferings for our sins, we're not told what he was thinking. But you know what? We really do know what he was thinking, because if you look at Isaiah 50, verse 7, we are told what he was thinking. Here's what he was thinking. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. Those were some of his thoughts as he was going to the cross. He knew he was in the center of the, of the Father's will and that he was not at all confused about his task. It says, you know, I shall not be confounded. He was not confounded. He wasn't confused at all about what he was doing. He was resolved to accomplish the work that he had come to do. And there was even an eagerness in him to accomplish that work, you know, and get it over with and get it behind him. He had every confidence also that he would be successful. What's it say in Isaiah 57? I know that I shall not be ashamed. He knew he would be successful. Yes, he might have been shamed on the cross because it was a shameful thing for him to hang up there in front of the world. But he would not be ashamed in his part because he would fulfill both the recorded word of the Lord and the redemptive work of the Lord. He would fulfill and complete both perfectly. So he would not be ashamed. So with prophesied flint-like determination, this is actually telling us that he once again was fulfilling prophecy because there he is, you know, like a flint headed right toward the cross, which is what was predicted in Isaiah. So with this determination, he's out in front leading his flock right into the den of wolves, right into hostile territory. He was the good shepherd on his way to give his life for those sheep, his sheep, and save them eternally from being devoured by the roaring lion, Satan. He had set his course 
to bear the cross and he was driven, he was pressed, he was compelled, he was unwavering in his resolve to fulfill the will of his father and complete the purpose for which he came. And that was an amazing thing to behold. I would have liked to have seen him at that point in time. I would have liked to have seen him out in front, seen that flint-like determination. It was an amazing thing to behold, but it was also frightening for the sheep uh, that, who were following behind him. However, we do have to commend the sheep here because in spite of all their fears and in spite of all their many misunderstandings about the type of Messiah he was, they always thought of him as a you know, political Messiah, when in fact he was spiritual, but uh, also in spite of all their misconceptions about him and his kingdom and their reluctance to really hear what he had been repeatedly trying to tell them about both his death and his resurrection, and despite their self-centeredness, which we will see immediately follows this scene with James and John. We'll look at that next week, Lord willing. But in spite of all these things, these were genuine sheep, with one exception, of course, Judas Iscariot. But otherwise, they were genuine sheep, and uh, therefore, even into the heart of enemy territory, what did they do? What do sheep do? (laughs) They keep following their shepherd. They kept following him. They didn't withdraw from him, even though here they are, fearful and everything. They, They kept following him. They knew he was worth following because he alone had the words of eternal life. And they believed in him, and they were convinced that he was the true Messiah, even if they couldn't always understand him. And they certainly had a hard time understanding him. We'll see that even again today. So even though he's engrossed in his own thoughts, yet, of course, the compassionate Christ, who is also omniscient, he knows everything, he, he knew that his compelling manner was causing a growing bewilderment and fear in his followers. So he slowed down and he took the 12 apart from the big Passover crowd in order to begin to tell them more about what's going to happen. It says, Jesus began to tell them what things should happen to him. He had actually just probably been preoccupied with these very things, and he knew them all by heart. It was no surprise to him, the betrayal of, Jesus, of, of uh, by Judas. That was predicted back in Psalm 41, 9 for one place. He knew about it. He knew about his arrest by the Sanhedrin council, his deliverance into the hands of both Herod and also Pontius Pilate. And he knew ahead of time about all the abuse that they would inflict upon him, the horrendous suffering of the cross that he would endure. And he knew, of course, about his death and his burial. And what else did he know about? His resurrection on the third day and his ascension back into glory to be back at home and be with his father in heaven so he said to his 12 behold and when jesus says behold what does it mean this is this is important kind of like verily look this is important we go up to jerusalem and this is the part i told you we find over in luke 18 21 he said this and all things all things that are written by the prophets concerning the son of man shall be accomplished So using his favorite title for himself, which is the Son of Man, a clearly messianic title, all the Jews knew that was a messianic title, he told his men, in effect, look, we are going up to Jerusalem because it is written that we do so. 
And uh, the inspired word of God revealed by the Old Testament prophets is going to be accomplished. It will be accomplished. If, you see, if the Old Testament scriptures were going to be fulfilled in everything that they had to say about the Messiah in both his first and his second comings, it was mandatory that he who is the Son of Man go up to Jerusalem at this very appointed time. Now, do you want to know what some of those Old Testament scriptures are? And remember, if just one of them did not come to pass, if one of them was not fulfilled precisely as stated, then we could throw out our Bibles. There'd be no sense in us coming here together on Tuesdays and studying the Bibles because, you know, if the scripture is broken, we can't rely on it as the word of God. So what were some of those prophecies? He said, all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Well, I couldn't possibly give them all to you because we'd be here too long. But let me just give you some of them. For example, Daniel 9.25. One of my favorite prophecies in the Old Testament is the 70 weeks prophecy. Did you know that Daniel, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, predicted the very day that Jesus would officially announce himself to Israel as her Messiah? Go ahead, figure it out. He said that there would be 69 weeks of years from the time a decree went forth to rebuild Jerusalem. That decree we know from history was issued by Artaxerxes. And from the time of that decree forward, 69 weeks of years would be 483 years. You have to compute that in today's understanding that the Jews had a 360-day year instead of a 365-day year. And then accounting for lunar years instead of solar years anyway you get you come out to something like 173,885 I can't remember the exact amount um, but if you count those amount of days forward from the issuing of that decree by Artaxerxes guess what day you come to precisely the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey and and officially presented himself to Israel as her Messiah a day we call Palm Sunday to the very day. So he's saying, you know, it's important that we go at this time. Oh, yes, at that very time. Also, he, if he was to be the Lamb of God who delivered men from their bondage to this world, he would have to, he would fulfill the type of all the Passover lambs that were ever slain um, on the very day of Passover, wouldn't he? If you're going to be the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, wouldn't you die on the Passover? Was Did he die on the Passover? Yes. He even died at three in the afternoon, the ninth hour, which was the very hour that the Passover lambs were slaughtered there in Jerusalem. Incredible. Zechariah 9.9, we just talked about this, predicted that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem, officially announcing himself as Messiah on what? On the colt of an ass. A donkey which had never been ridden before. And he did. Zechariah 11.12 and Psalm 41.9. He would be betrayed for how many pieces of silver? 30 pieces of silver. By his own friend. You know, one with whom he had eaten bread. And of course, we know that was fulfilled exactly by uh, Judas. Jeremiah 18, 1 to 4, the betrayal money would be used to buy a potter's field, and it was. Zechariah 13, 7, he would be forsaken by his disciples. 
when the sheep was smitten, what happened to the, I mean, when the shepherd was smitten, the sheep scattered, and they did. Isaiah 50, verse 6, he would be scourged, and he would be spat upon. Psalm 22, 18, lots would be cast for his garments. Isaiah 53, 12, he would be crucified between two thieves. Psalm 69, 21, he would be given vinegar to drink. Psalm 22, 16, he would suffer the piercing of both his hands and his feet. Psalm 22, 1, he would cry out, my God, my God, why have hast thou forsaken me? And he did. And there was a real good reason for that. When we get to it, I'll explain to you. Psalm 22, 7, he would be laughed at and scorned by his enemies. Psalm 22, 15 and Psalm 69, 21, he would thirst. And one of the seven sayings on the cross was, I thirst. Psalm 31, 5, he would be, he would commend his spirit to his father. Did they take his life? No, he gave it. He commended his own spirit to his father. Exodus twelve forty six, Psalm thirty four twenty. Not one of his bones would be broken. Zech and they weren't, although the two thieves were. Their bones were broken. Zechariah twelve ten. He would be pierced, and he was with a Roman um, sword in his side. Isaiah fifty three nine. He would be buried with the rich. And he was. He was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's rich tomb. Psalm 16.10, he would be raised from the dead. Psalm 110.1, he would ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of God the Father. So you see, and those are just some of them. If he did not die where he did, when he did, in the way he did, on the day he did, by the various ones who were responsible, such as Judas, a friend, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and the Romans, if he was not buried as he was, if he did not resurrect and then ascend into heaven, then not only would the Old Testament scriptures regarding his first coming be broken, but there would be no meaning to all of the prophecies regarding his second coming. If he didn't fulfill first coming prophecies, what good would all the second coming prophecies do? We would all still be unsaved and there would be no word of truth upon which we could rely for any hope of salvation whatsoever. It, so it was critical. Do you understand how critical it was that at this time he go up to Jerusalem? And he would because it was a divine must. You know, if you look back at Mark eight thirty-one, where Jesus first, well, I don't know if this is the first time, it's not really his first prediction, but one of his predictions of his death to his men, he had told them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And when Jesus says must, guess what? It's a must. Yeah, it's like a done. It's like it's already done. It, there is no alternative. It will be done. And he spoke of this must again in Mark 9. Just flip over to Mark 9, 12. He said, it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things. You see, he had been telling his men all along about the necessity of the cross. Now here in Mark 10, we just looked at Mark 8, Mark 9. Now here in Mark 10, we find that he not only speaks of the necessity of the cross, but the certainty of the cross. He speaks as though he knows that it will indeed come to pass. He speaks of it as though it's already accomplished. He says, all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Is that Mark? Maybe that was Luke. That's the, maybe the passage from Luke. But in a minute, when we look at all the various details, the specifics that he predicted would take place at the cross, and this is 
the most detailed of all of his prophecies about what would happen to him, this one we're looking at today, we're going to find out that not only did he talk about the necessity of the cross and the certainty of the cross, but he also talked about the cruelty of the cross. He knew all about it. He knew everything that he would suffer. Did you know, I was reading one commentary, and it actually was telling about how the cross was very dear to the Lord's heart. I got to the end. Well, yeah, I guess it was. It was a very dear, you know, we look at it as such a cruel instrument of torture and death but it was a dear thing to the father's to um, the father's heart and to the son's heart why was it dear to the lord jesus christ well because it was his father's will and in willingly giving his life as a ransom for many he would please and he would propitiate his father he would please and he would satisfy his father. So it was dear to his heart. It was also dear to his heart, the cross, because it was the means by which he would gain many brothers and sisters, you know, joint heirs with him in his kingdom. It was dear to his heart because through the death on the cross, he would be made the captain of man's salvation, as it tells us in Hebrews 2.10. By the cross, he would destroy the power of the devil over man. And what is that power? death he would destroy death so yeah that would make it dear to his heart the cross was dear to his heart because it was by by it he was to reconcile man to god and also man to his fellow man and the cross was dear to his heart because it was the way by way of his death upon the cross that he would then be able to rise from the dead, defeat death, and return to his former glory that he had with his Father in heaven. So he was anxious to get the cross behind him so he could go back home. Well, regardless of what, you know, in our day and age, you hear a lot of criticism about Jesus, more than ever before. But regardless of what the critics and the skeptics and the atheists and the world of unbelieving men might say, and it's, this has even crept into the church, to try to convince others that Jesus was merely a good guy, you know, a nice, well-meaning, kind, gentle visionary who got caught and killed by the religious fanatics of Judaism and that it was just too bad that his disciples, uh, you know, it's too bad for him, and it was unfortunate that his disciples didn't know when to quit and that they had to go around making up stories about him, you know, myths that have continued on to this day and deceived so many hundreds and millions of people. And in spite of all those, others who would try to tell us that Jesus was a world be, would-be world conqueror and a self-imagined Messiah who tried to pull off a revolution but instead became a victim of his own, you know, of, of circumstances. And despite all the other false reports about him that you will hear on television and everywhere else, you know, that he had a love affair with Mary Magdalene, you know, and they had a child out of wedlock and all that junk, or that he was a, a homosexual and he had a love affair with John, Oh, yeah, that's the latest one. You know, they even use uh, Leonardo da Vinci's picture to try to prove it. Anyway, all this ad nauseum stuff. The fact of the matter is that we have the biblical record to clarify, to clearly clarify all this and to tell us that the suffering and the death of Christ was no mere miscalculation or accident. Jesus was not at all a victim of circumstances that were beyond his control. Throughout what we're going to be looking at for the next three years, we're a week away from the 
the cross when we have three and a half years of Bible study left. It's amazing. But anyway, all that we're going to be looking at shows us over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, it just gets so repetitive that he's in complete control the entire time. He was not a victim of circumstances. Uh, He knew about everything that would happen to him. He wasn't surprised by any of it. He wasn't surprised by the betrayal of Judas. He predicted that ahead of time. He uh, knew about his arrest. He even made it easy for them by going to the place Judas knew he would be, the Garden of Gethsemane, Um, or any of the other things that happened to him. He knew all about them. Truth is, he, and this is the truth. You'll hear a lot of lies, but this is the truth. He is a member of the triune Godhead head counsel who planned all these things to occur in eternity past that's the truth ladies now the world would laugh at a comment like that but that is the truth he not only foreknew them because he planned them with his father and with the holy spirit but he foretold of them through the prophets of the old testament scriptures and then even in his incarnation Even the humanity of Christ, he knew about everything that awaited him. Look back to his very first recorded words. What were the Lord's very first recorded words that we have in the scripture? When he was only how old? When he was only 12 years old. What did he say to his parents who were all uptight because they couldn't find him? And Yes, and they finally found him in the temple and he said, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not, which means, didn't you know that I must, there it is, that I must be about my father's business. Even then, when he was 12 years old, he knew why he was here. I think he knew, I think he knew all along why he was here. And then what were his very last recorded words that we have in the scripture before his death? When he was up on the cross, his seventh and final saying on the cross is, It is finished. Te telestai. What was finished? Well, you know, that work I told you about when I was 12 years old. <laughs> the work my father sent me to do. It's finished. He had come to die for the sins of the world. He knew he was born to die. His journey to Jerusalem at this time was no mistake. It was no accident. He was not walking straight into some kind of booby trap, you know, and making some very poor decisions here. It was all part of the divine program for the redemption of lost mankind and for the redemption of a world under the curse of sin and the dominion of that wicked, evil, awful usurper, Satan. We also know that the Lord foreknew of all that awaited him in this final trip to the holy city because he himself had been predicting this truth all along. Ever since he began his public ministry, he has been telling his men about this. In fact, and this is no coincidence either, his prediction here in our lesson today is not only his final and most detailed prophecy about all that he would endure, you know, the sufferings of the cross. But guess what? It is also the Lord's one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh prediction of his upcoming suffering and death and resurrection. And you only get that when you study his life chronologically. All the other guys that study just Matthew, just Mark, just Luke, just they miss this. But when you study his life chronologically, seven times. Isn't that wonderful, perfect, complete? (laughs) So what I want to do right now is just real quickly remind you of those seven places. 
All right? And they start very early in his ministry. The first time he went into the holy city during his public ministry, he went straight to the temple, and what did he do? It was a fulfillment of prophecy because Malachi said that he would suddenly come to his temple. And he did. And everybody knew he'd been there that day because he cleansed it. And boy, you know, those religious rulers were really upset about that. And so they asked, he, that's when he said, make not my father's house into a house of merchandise. And they, they said, give us a sign to tell us that you have the right to do what you just did. Who in the world are you? Who do you think you are chasing out all these money changers and animal sellers? Give us a sign. And you know what he did? Here's his sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now we're told that this was misunderstood by the Jews and the disciples standing there didn't get it either until after his resurrection. We know that because John tells us they didn't get it. But we know what he was speaking of. He wasn't speaking of the literal temple, was he? He's speaking about his body, which was at that point in time, the temple of God, the true temple of God. Destroy this temple and who would destroy it? Those Jews. Destroy this temple and in three days... I'll raise it up. The resurrection is in that prophecy, isn't it? All right, then the second time he predicted his own suffering was on another occasion when he had been asked by the Jews for a sign. And this was right after they had accused him of doing all his works in the power of Beelzebub, or Satan. <clears throat> and the Lord had said to them, Okay, there shall you, you're not going to get another sign. There shall no sign be given but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because as Jonah was three days, three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So this too, even though they didn't get it, they didn't understand it. I don't know, maybe some real smart person, but the disciples didn't get it. <laughs> Jonah was three days and three days. You know, that's speaking of... Um, Resurrection. After three days, Jonah came out. After three days, I'm going to come out of the, of the belly of the earth. So there is another prediction. <clears throat> and then the third one is in Matthew 16, 21, which is also found in Mark 8, 31. And this was right after Peter's wonderful confession as to the deity of Christ. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right after that, the Lord sat down and he began to teach his apostles that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And once more, not only do we hear about his suffering and his death, but what else? His resurrection and after three days rise again. The fourth prediction was in Matthew 17, verses 10 to 12, and it was also found over in Mark 9, 12. And this was when the Lord instructed the three inner disciples, Peter, James, and John, as they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He tells them to tell no man what they had seen up there until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And then he went on to tell them that the Jews would allow to happen to, to happen to him what they had allowed to happen to John the Baptist. He said, likewise, shall also the Son of Man suffer of them, of the Jews. What had the Jews allowed of John the Baptist? They had allowed him to be turned over to the Gentiles, Herod, and beheaded. They could have made a big ruckus and stopped that. Herod would have conceded to them. But they didn't. They wanted to get 
You know, they didn't like John the Baptist too much. They wanted to get him out of the picture. So they didn't do anything to prevent Herod from beheading him. So in that one, he not only told them, you know, that he would be risen again, but that he would also suffer. Then the fifth prediction is in Mark 9.31. And this is as the Lord and his men are passing through Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Okay, these guys should be starting to get the picture, wouldn't you think? <laughs> then the sixth time was not too long ago. It was in Lesson 111 when we discussed the two returns. Luke 17, 25, the Lord had been talking to his men about his return at the second coming. And he said, remember, you know, that things would be in that day as they were in the days of Noah. And as in the days of Lot, you know, that when the Son of Man came, there'd be lightning from one end of the heavens to the other. And uh, he was talking about his second coming, but he said, but first must, there's that must again, but first must the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. So this would look like it's the only one of the seven that doesn't include the resurrection, because he says, but first must the man, son of man suffer many things be rejected. And there's nothing about the third day he'll rise. But what had he just told them? He was telling them about when the son of man would return. When he would come back to earth. So obviously implied in there is that he departed from the earth. And that he ascended back up into heaven if he's going to come back. So that's implied in there. And now we have here in Mark 10, 33 and 34... This last and seventh prediction of his suffering and death and resurrection. His, he tells his men, behold, we go up to Jerusalem. Where is it going to happen? In Jerusalem. We go up to Jerusalem. And he would be delivered unto the chief priests. I think I told you over in one of the other accounts, it says he would be betrayed. Under the, um, and then delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. And uh, then they would turn him over to the Gentiles. They would be the ones to condemn him to die. The scribe, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, that makes up the Sanhedrin. They would condemn him to death, but then they would turn him over to the Gentiles. So there is a progression of how much he reveals. If you go back and look at these seven predictions, he tells them more and more and more. And here in this last one, he tells them the most details of all. He says it will be in Jerusalem. He tells them that he will be spitefully entreated. That's in Luke. He says uh, that they will mock him, scourge him, spit on him. Um, what else does it say, you know? And that death will be by crucifixion. Now, you don't see this in Mark because he just says that he will be um, killed. But Matthew tells us, actually, he said that he used the word crucified, that he would be crucified. So, now, by the way, you know, the Jews would have put Jesus to death themselves, regardless of the fact that Rome would not allow them to carry out the death penalty. You always hear that the Jews had to turn Jesus over to the Romans because they were not allowed by Roman law to condemn someone to death. But bottom line is that those Jews knew Rome wouldn't do much at all about them stoning someone to death for one of their little religious reasons. 
if you remember, they have already attempted to stone him to death on a number of occasions. And they weren't worried about what Rome would do. They knew Rome would not get involved in that, that they would just overlook that. Okay, well, sweep that one under the rug. They, tr- they tried to stone him to death on several occasions, and even remember his hometown people of Nazareth tried to push him off a cliff. You think they were worried about what Rome would do? No. And um, so they'd attempted, but he always miraculously walked away unharmed. The fact is that the establishment, the Jews, the religious rulers... Uh, were afraid of the common people. They weren't afraid of Rome. They were afraid of the common people because many of the common people did look to Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. And the Jews were afraid of the great multitude of -of out-of-town Passover pilgrims, many of them from Galilee, who came with Jesus or were in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover in order to not only celebrate the Passover, but to see this one who they had heard so much about. The Jews were afraid of what would happen to them by the masses if they stoned Jesus to death. But you see, by handing him over to to the Gentiles, by handing him over to Pilate under the darkness of night, they could get they could get him to do their dirty work for them. Furthermore, they knew that this one they hated so much, yet without a cause, and that's another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that they hated him without a cause, that he would suffer much more by the Gentiles um, by crucifixion, because that was their mode of, of the death punishment, was crucifixion. They, they hated him so much that they would rather see him die the the horrible torture of crucifixion than just stoning him to death because that would be quick and fast and over with in no time so um so he would suffer more and furthermore not only would his suffering be so much worse but they could use this against him because deuteronomy twenty one twenty four says cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree and so this could they could use this to deter the Jewish people from believing in him. They could convince the people that the true Messiah would never have died under the curse of God. Cursed is everyone that dieth on a tree. He can't be the Messiah. He died, you know, under the curse. They didn't understand, of course, that he became willingly a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law, which is what it says in Galatians 3. All right? However, of course, we know that all their reasons for what they did, we know that overriding all of the evil motives of the Jews was the fact that the scriptures cannot be broken, and the Old Testament had predicted that the Messiah would die by way of crucifixion. The Lord Jesus had, remember, predicted this to Nicodemus. Now, I could have included this as one of the predictions, but the disciples weren't there. You know, it was just to Nicodemus. He had said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He knew, you know, that that picture in the wilderness when they lifted up the serpent, that was a picture of him being lifted up on the cross. 
So the Old Testament predicted death by crucifixion. And you can just read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 69 and Psalm 22. And you have a picture of crucifixion. Piercing the hands and the feet, etc. Anyway, back to the Lord's final prediction here of his sufferings in, in Mark 10. We find that the only part of the prediction that he doesn't elaborate on, that he doesn't expand upon, was his resurrection. Although he does again tell his men the third day he would rise again. It was there, wasn't it? It was there over and over again. Okay, I'm going to go through all this, but the third day I'll rise again. You know, it's the third day, this temple will be destroyed. Third, third day, I'll raise it up. Jonah in the whale of the belly, three days. Third day, I'll come out. Over and over again, he tells them this, but they never seem to hear it. And they only remembered it all after he indeed did rise on the third day. Well, they actually didn't get it until... He can't, well, we'll get to that at the end of the lesson in Luke 24. But it may not have mattered here if he had elaborated on his resurrection. Because even after three years of hearing him not only predict all, you know, his upcoming sufferings, his death, and his resurrection, not only through direct prophecies, but he also predicted to them these things. You know that? Through parables he was telling them. Um... But despite all the times he was trying to get it through to them, they just didn't get it. Now, Mark doesn't mention this, but as I said earlier, Luke does. Now, here is where I want you to go. Luke 18.34, real quick. Luke 18.34. It says, everybody there? And they, that's speaking of the disciples, and they, the disciples, understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. Now, when I read that, after I've just gone back and looked at all the times the Lord told them, I just, why in the, I mean, I know that I'm a dumb sheep, but I think, I don't know, I was trying to put myself in my sandals, their sandals, I think I'd get it by now. I think I'd get it. Okay, you're going to suffer a lot of things. Third day, you're going to rise again. So it really, it puzzles me um, why they didn't get it. It says, look at Luke. It says they understood none of these things. Now, I know that we have the advantage of hindsight. And that's a big advantage. (laughs) But still... There were Old Testament prophets who understood a whole lot more truths that were much more veiled than what these guys are being told. You know, just what exactly was their problem? I don't think they had all had low IQs. What's their problem? Well, I think that perhaps as we look back at some of their reactions to his predictions... I think this gives us a little more understanding as to why they didn't get it. Okay, so let's real quickly look back. In the first two predictions, which were about destroying the temple and raising it back in three days, and then the second prediction about the sign of Jonah, the response of the disciples was that they didn't understand. And I can, okay, I can understand that. Uh, His meaning was just too veiled and they didn't, they didn't understand it until after his resurrection. However, in his third prediction, 
we have, you know, he tells them in the third time that he's, he gets more specific, that he's going to suffer and on the third day he's going to rise again. And what we find is a very sharp reaction, a very sharp response by none other than who? <laughs> the spokesman for the disciples, Peter. Peter hears this. It, it penetrates. He heard it and he gets upset and he actually rebuked the Lord for saying that he must suffer and be killed and raised again the third day. He says, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. And that was in Matthew sixteen twenty-two. And of course, we all remember the Lord's response to Peter, don't we? Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, which means you're a stumbling. You're trying to stumble me, Peter. For you savor not the things that are of God, but you savor those things that are of men. Why didn't the disciples understand the prediction? Well, one reason is because they didn't like the plans of God. They preferred, they savored their own plans, their own ideas. They'd much rather go into Jerusalem, set up the kingdom, and be on thrones next to him. They like their plans a lot better than God's plans. Well, then in Mark 9, following another one of the Lord's predictions of his upcoming suffering and death and resurrection on the third day, we're told that the disciples understood not, that's in Mark 9, and were afraid to ask him. So I got to thinking, why didn't they understand? Tells them over and over again. Number one, they didn't like what they heard. Number two, we're told here, they were afraid they were afraid to ask him fear. They did not like what they heard because it was not the way that they would do things and it was just too fearful for them to think about him dying. You know, if he, if he died, whatever would happen to them, they'd probably die too. So they willfully wanted to remain ignorant. They didn't want to find out any more than what he had just told them. At that point, you know, he, they could have said, well, what do you mean? Can you tell us more? And he probably would have. But they didn't want any more light, did they? They didn't want, want any more. So they were willfully ignorant here. And then right after that, guess what they started to do? They started to dispute among themselves as to who of them was the greatest. Well, that's their response. They were fearful. They didn't want to ask him anymore. And then they start fighting like a bunch of children. And that is just about exactly what we're going to find the response. Well, it is. <laughs> the response of the disciples is to now hearing this most detailed and final seventh prediction of his death and resurrection. It's not Peter who messes up this time, but it's the other two inner circle disciples. Isn't that interesting? The godliest of them all, well, maybe not, but the inner circle ones who were given more privileges, James and John. The two sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee, they come to Jesus along with, guess who? They bring their mother with them to ask to be the greatest. Now, this not only tells us, they come to Jesus and they say, we have the first and second thrones, one on your right and one on your left when you come into your kingdom. What does this tell us? This tells us that these guys absolutely, apparently learn nothing at all about his parable of the laborers in the vineyard. You'd think, you know, why would we ask for the first seats? That would mean we'd be last. Oh, that's not a good thing to do. 
So that apparently that parable went right over their head. And they're only stuck on remembering that he had told them that uh, they would get promised kingdom thrones over Israel. You know, they'd be ruling 12 thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel. It, it, it not only tells us that they did not want to hear what he had just told them, but um, that they're just thinking all about him, themselves. Why in the world didn't they just heard all the awful things he's going to have to go through? And do they speak one word to him of sympathy? Oh, Lord, this, you know, this is awful. Is there anything we can do to help you? You're going to be spit upon, mocked, scourged, in spitefully, despitefully treat, treated or whatever that wording was, crucified? No, no sympathy to him. Instead, they come asking for the chief seats in the house. It's just incredible. Uh, they had absolutely no concept. They'd never been taught of a suffering Messiah. So they had no concept of a suffering, dying Messiah. Even though, as we just showed, the Old Testament is full of verses and pictures. We didn't even talk about all the pictures in type of a suffering Messiah. For example, the animal whose blood was shed in order to provide a covering for Adam and Eve... What about Abraham offering his son Isaac uh, up there on Mount Moriah, the very place where Jesus was crucified? And then, of course, the ram substitute. And what about the Passover lamb's blood that was shed and placed on the doorposts of Israel's home so that the death angel would pass by? And what about the um, sacrifice on the Day of Atonement? And that whole picture and the scapegoat, etc. What about this, the rock that was smitten out in the wilderness from which sprung living water? Uh, what about the serpent lifted up in the wilderness? And what about Joseph's rejection by his own brothers and then being stripped of his robe and sold for 20, 20 pieces? I always wondered why it wasn't exactly 30, but... By pieces of silver, he was sold into, into slavery. And for all they knew, he was dead. And then he came back to life, you know, and he was at the second hand of, of the Pharaoh, just like Christ at the second hand of God. There's so much meaning in all that. And what about David, King David, picture of Christ? What about David's betrayal by his dear friend Ahithophel? which is a picture of, of Judas betraying the Lord Jesus. The and there's more and more and more and more. But the disciples didn't understand, we are told, none of these things. And neither did they get it. You know, they didn't get it from the Old Testament scriptures, and neither did they get it when the Lord spoke directly to them. They heard his words, but they chose not to believe them because they really just didn't want to believe them. They processed only what appealed to their ears. Do we have people that do that today? Oh, yes, do we ever. After all, if Jesus was to suffer and die, that could not be very good for them. Uh, at best, they would be outcasts from society. And likely, too, they could even well be turned over to the Gentiles for crucifixion. So just like children might do when, uh, they, don't, when they hear something they don't like, you know, when mommy says, no, you can't go and sleep over with your... What did, they, what did they do? They really, they just stopped up their ears in fear. Or, as with Peter, they tried to argue with him. And then they even argued with one another, just like children. 
Not one of them thought, even thought, to offer him some words of comfort or try to sympathize with him. And apparently their hearts never, their hearts' ears, I should say, never allowed them to even get past his predictions of suffering and death to hear what he repeatedly had to say about a third-day resurrection. You'd think that they would really, you'd think that after he died, okay, he said this, he said he would be scourged, spit upon, da-da-da-da-da, all these things have happened. Oh, but remember he said on the third day he would rise again? Don't you think that you'd be standing there at the tomb one day, two days, three, okay, this is it. But were they? No. It's amazing, isn't it? But did they ever get it? Did they ever get it? Okay, let's look at Luke 24. We'll close with this. It's amazing. They didn't really fully get it until the Lord again explained it to them in his glorified, resurrected body. Look at Luke 24. This is after, after his death, after his resurrection. Luke 24. Starting at, um, let's see... Verse 36, and as they thus spake, this is the disciples speaking among themselves with the two on the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, why are ye troubled and why do your thought, do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit have not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when, they, when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy. You know what that means? This is just too good to be true. While they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of an honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And here it is. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. You know what that is? Law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Whole Old Testament is about him. Didn't I tell you guys over and over and over again that everything in the Old Testament about me must be fulfilled? And then verse 45, I love this part. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Oh, I wish that that verse, we need to pray that verse for people in the world today. That he would open their understanding to understand the scriptures. Oh, God, I pray that for America. Anyway, he opened their understanding. And he said, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. Did they get it? They got it. Oh, my, did they get it. And they turned the world literally upside down. Well, next week, we end on a happy note, but next week we have to go back to a sad note because we'll see James and John selfishly ambitious and then all the rest of the disciples fighting again. 
But uh, we're glad that we know how the story ultimately ends, aren't we? Let's pray. Thank you for your patience. Father, we thank you for your word, and we just pray, Lord, for those in the world who don't understand it, that don't even bother to read it. I would just pray, Lord, that they would read it and that you would open their hearts to understand the scripture that Jesus Christ is indeed exactly who he claimed to be. He is our Lord and Savior. Thank you for the truth of scripture that we can that we can build our lives upon it, that it is a rock, it is a sure foundation, Lord, and, and that your truth will endure forever. This world is fading away, but your word is settled in heaven. And we thank you for that truth. And now we just pray that you'd go with every lady, help her to be a witness to everyone she comes into contact this week with her words and her life. And we will give you all the praise and the glory for everything you accomplish. Lord, keep us safe and bring us back again next Tuesday where we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.